It was just less than six months ago that we had this, the, the third parable. The church in her wisdom adds the first two parables. And I think uh, there's reason for us uh, to reflect, even though we've just recently had it, to reflect again, because I find the parables like a kaleidoscope. Every time you look in it, it you get a little bit different view. And uh, sometimes that view is, looks kind of similar, but sometimes it's like, is this even the same parable? And uh, with these three parables partnered together, we see something coming to the fore, something that perhaps uh, St. Luke, as he was recording these, uh, did consciously, Jesus himself doing consciously, of connecting these. And uh, first I'll point out, uh, some have suggested that St. Luke pairs the first two because as often he does, if he, ter- if he shares parables, he shares one about men and then about women. So the men who are out harvesting or the women who are uh, thrashing the grain, uh, for example. Here, the, the man who loses the sheep and the woman who loses a coin. First, the sheep, though, you know if you had a hundred sheep and you went wandering for the lost one, how many sheep you're going to have is zero. Because all 99 of the others will, will wander. But this is how much the shepherd loves his sheep, apparently, that he's willing to risk the 99 to find the lost one. And when he does so, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy, which is something that a shepherd would not do either. A shepherd, well, actually, the shepherd would set it on his shoulders, but first the shepherd would break the sheep's leg so it learns its lesson and never wanders again, which is kind of cruel if you think about it. But here he puts it with great joy, not with frustration, and calls his friends together. Now, I remember in seminary when we were addressing this parable, one of my classmates said, and wouldn't it be fun if he slaughtered that sheep and threw a feast? I found my sheep, which we're eating now. Or then we have the woman who loses one of her ten coins. Now, if I remember in the Greek, this is a rather insignificant kind of coin, but she searches carefully, sweeps and puts everything in order, looks for it and looks for it until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends together and rejoice with me, I found the lost coin. In the same vein, wouldn't it be ironic if she threw a party and spent that coin? But she rejoices over having found it. And when we look at these two together, not only are they parables of the lost, but we have the first one where the sheep knows and consciously did something, even though a sheep is not culpable of it or anything like that, but he's the one that wandered away. And then we have the coin, inanimate as it is, doesn't know anything, didn't wander away, didn't, didn't do anything, doesn't know it's lost. And keeping that in the background, we might be able to look at this story, often, of course, called the prodigal son, My contention is prodigal, meaning extravagant. It's not the son who's necessarily extravagant, but the father. And I think there's another, by the end, hopefully you'll you'll agree with me, another title that we can give to this passage. We hear this man who has two sons, and if you remember back six months ago, I shared that the law of of the time was when only in death 
was the father to give the inheritance. He would give divided among the sons plus one, and the eldest son would get a double share. For one of the children, one of the sons to come forward and say, give me my share, even yet today this is pretty bold and pretty uh, terrible to do. But in the days of Jesus, in this particular culture, it would have been like telling him a little bit more crass, perhaps, than drop dead. You're worth only the inheritance you can give me to me. And that's exactly what this younger son does. And to, to be honest, the father, if he would have followed the culture, would have said, you know what? You want your inheritance? You get nothing. You're written out. You're, you're gone. You're not my son anymore. You want me gone? Because by law, by custom, when the father divided everything, he left nothing to himself. And he would be reliant on the goodness of his sons whom he had given his wealth to. But let's be honest, if they're asking for their inheritance before he's dead, what's the likelihood they're going to take care of him? This is a terrible thing. And this is exactly what the younger son has done. Not only that, insult to injury, he takes everything and he wanders off to a distant country. He spends everything, and of course, we hear this famine, that when he has nothing left, this famine comes, and his friends abandon him. He's left penniless and hungry, and hires himself out to a hired hand. And worse, for this good Jewish boy in which they don't even touch swine, he has to feed them. And even worse than that, not only is he feeding them, but he's longing for their feed. Have you ever been so hungry that you long for pig slop? And that's exactly where this young Jewish man is. And he comes to his senses. My father's hired workers. He treats them so much better. They have plenty to eat. I took advantage of my father's love. I took advantage of my father's extravagance. I took advantage of him, but he did it all. I need to go back. And I know I can't go back as a son because I don't deserve that. I told my dad, I want the inheritance. I don't want you. I need to go back. And he does. And the father sees him and will have none of it. He understands the father that the son is repentant. And more than that, he understands that the, the son has a right. And he asks for the, the robe and the ring and the, and the uh, sandals. Not only is that covering his shame and, and physically comforting, but is symbolic of his authority, his dignity, and his identity as a son. And of course, they throw a party. And the older son comes in. I like to imagine he smelled the uh, uh, fattened calf before he even heard the noise. The smell sometimes goes so much further when you're roasting something. And he hears the noise and he, what's going on? Your brother is back. Oh, better be him on the spigot. Really, he's back? 
I'm not going to deal with him. Oh, your father has taken him back and we're throwing a party for him. What? And the father coming out. The father comes out to the son. Just as he ran to this younger son, now he's coming out to the older son. And he reminds the son that his brother is back. But notice this older brother will have none of it. This son of yours, he has once no relationship with his brother. And the father pleads with him. Pleads with him. He was lost, but now is found. And the father leaves him outside to ponder. Like I said, I'm convinced this parable should go, go by another title. And that is a parable of the two sons, the two lost sons, because they're both lost. We have the younger son who knows he's lost, who knows he needs to come back to the father, and is waiting, of course, for the father to take him back, not even as a son, but as a servant, but is accepted back as a son, forgiven, because he's repentant. And then we have the older son, who is so lost he doesn't even know it. He has no relationship with his father. Look, all these years I served you, and not once did you even give me a kid goat. You think somebody got his goat? He's angry, and has no relationship with his father. He's as lost as his brother was, and he doesn't even know it. And that's the challenge. He's holding the door shut, and his brother re-entering the family home. Perhaps with good reason. The family home, everything that was left was his. By custom, the father had nothing. So the, the, the older son, while he was mad that the father didn't even give him a kid goat, didn't want to share what he had and holds the door shut or tries to. This older son, as the scribes and the Pharisees would have heard this parable, they must have been burning, realizing that they were the older son in the parable. They were the ones who were holding the door shut on the tax collectors and the sinners. They, they were the ones who were holding the door shut on the prostitutes and, and the, the Samaritans. They were the ones holding the door shut on all that they felt were not worthy of God's love. They were the ones who were lost and didn't even know it. And so it is true for us, too, so often that we hold unforgiveness for our brothers and sisters who have wandered away, and we might even ask ourselves, do they deserve God's mercy? And when we ask such questions, we are truly the most lost of all. We think we're holding the door shut and not allowing them to come into heaven, but in the end, Jesus would remind us so often when we hold the door shut, it's we on the outside holding it shut. We ourselves on the outside lost. Asking ourselves, where are we? We're, as Catholics, often the elder son in the parable. The lost ones who don't even know. And that's why somebody like St. Paul in today's second reading is so important. He knows he was lost, but now is found. He knows he was blind, but now he sees, and literally he was blind. 
He knows that God has forgiven him and treated him with mercy, though he was the worst of all sinners, he tells us. He was a blasphemer and a persecutor. He brought Christians in and put them to death. Oh, not literally at his own hands, but brought them forward to be killed, to be before trial. And he knows that God has treated him mercifully. He knows it. Do you think he's ever going to hold the door shut on anyone? He's going to hold the door wide open because he knows he does not deserve to be on the other, other side of that door. It's through the mercy of God that he's there. As I share this, I'm reminded of a few years ago, there was a particular movie coming out based on a Pulp Fiction book, a really badly, it was a horrible book, don't read it, it's not worth your time, The Da Vinci Code. And one of the particular problems that I had with it, and there were so many, was that the author suggested that the church was wrong, that the church, because the church painted Mary Magdalene as a, as a prostitute, that, that somehow this was terrible and this was wrong, and yes, maybe it was. But the point is St. Gregory the Great was the one who in a homily conflated Mary Magdalene with the prostitute, with a woman caught in adultery. The point isn't that she was a prostitute. The point was she repented of her life and she came to Jesus Christ. She didn't remain a prostitute, but came to Jesus Christ. So the author was basically holding the door shut in the church. On Mary Magdalene himself, herself, because he could not see that repentance was there. We are so often so easily lost. We are so often so easily holding the door shut on our brothers and sisters. We cannot do such a thing. We rejoice, not because they are sinners, but we rejoice because they repent. We rejoice not because we are sinners, but we rejoice because God treats us with the same mercy that he treated St. Paul and Mary Magdalene, all the saints. But it takes repentance, which comes from knowing we are lost, of coming to our senses and saying, I do not deserve to be a son or a daughter because I have wandered away. But it's through the mercy of God because he's treated me with kindness, mercy, because I have repentance in my heart for all that I've done, that he invites me in, and then we hold the door open for everyone.